Uh, let's just get started. Good evening, guys. Welcome to our session on Rucked by Banks. We normally try and uh, do a Twitter space session once a month, but I guess too many things happened this month alone, which kind of forced me to recall these two speakers back in here again. As you guys know, or probably have seen, there has been quite a spectacular amount of volatility in the markets this and last week. I mean, the entirety of March itself. Lah. Three US banks, Silvergate Bank, $16 billion in assets, the Silicon Valley Bank, the larger one, 16th largest bank in the US, uh, $209 billion in assets, Signature Bank, 29th largest in the US, $110 billion in assets. Now, all these three banks toppled in a matter of days. Uh, it's kind of threatening to send the global economy into a deep recession. Global equities, meanwhile, uh, especially bank stocks, took a huge downturn. Malaysia is no exception. Uh. Tonight's discussion with these two knowledgeable speakers will tackle exactly why and how did this happen. And we'll address the most important question, are Malaysian banks still safe? I'll just open a session really broadly. What do banks actually do with your money? Do they store it safely or use it for other purposes such as lending out or investing? My, first, my previous impression was that banks take your deposits and they actually lend it out to people at a much higher interest, thereby making a profit. Uh, this was the case until I read an article somewhere that, you know, it's not really true. Lah. And the question that, the more interesting question that I want to ask is that if banks are able to, you know, create money out of thin air, how is it possible for them to go bankrupt? Uh, I'll pass it over to Han first because Han has previously uh, dealt with this industry before. So Han, go ahead. Yeah, so what do banks do? Uh, sounds very simple, right? Uh, rather sounds like a weird question to ask. Everyone should know. But like, let's, let's get down to the basics, right? So what banks do is they take your money or you give them your money, right? And then with that money, they store it, yes. But they also do two main things, right? Number one, uh, they lend it out, right? So, you know, your home loans, your personal loans, your HPs, your credit card loans, those kind of stuff, right? And then for, for interest, you pay interest on those, right? Um, uh, and then they share some of that interest with you, the... The, the depositor, right? So, uh, uh, banks take your money, they lend it out, and then they share some of the interest with you. Now, sometimes it's not possible for a bank to lend out everything uh, just nicely in line with what uh, you deposit. So, for example, if somebody just deposits a big sum of money today, it's not like a bank can just wake and go, okay, now I just need to find you know, a whole new bunch of home loan people to lend this out to, a whole new bunch of car loan people. So, they need to do something with that extra cash to give you the interest they promise you, right? So what they do is, other than just giving people loans, they also do investments, right? Financial investments, things like bonds, uh, 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 money market instruments, and, and to a smaller extent, equity and other stuff. But mostly it's safe stuff, lah, because technically, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, they have to do their best to ensure that they, they can meet the interest, that, the interest requirements that they give you. Uh, so you get some share of it, the, the interest that they charge, you get some of it as the depositor, right? But, you know, the other part of it is uh, shareholders of the bank keep it, lah, right? But, uh, uh, just to correct you, Dash and G, uh, commercial banks cannot create money out in air, right? Uh, they can only lend or invest uh, 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 the deposits or, 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 or other ways of raising funds that they have. Uh, what central banks do, though, is can, they can create money. So, uh, central banks can do this, can create money out in air, uh, commercial banks cannot, right? But, you know, how central banks work, different story lah, huh? Uh, so, you know, why banks go bankrupt is a completely different reason for this, this creative money of thin air stuff. Why they go bankrupt is when 
uh, uh, I mean, in short, uh, a bank over time uh, makes bad investments, yes, but also if they aren't able to run a good banking business, i.e. they aren't able to make money from the interest difference between lending some uh, uh, lending money out and, uh, uh, yeah, and, and paying depositors, right? So that's when they actually start losing money. So, and as you know, when you start losing money, you have a chance to go bankrupt if you do that long enough. So hopefully that gives, you a, gives everyone a nice overview of what a bank does and how things can go wrong. No, actually, Hard, uh, you made me even more intrigued about banks, you know, because uh, my first misunderstanding was that they were able to create out of, uh, money out of thin air by creating loans. You know, what I read countless articles online is that whenever banks, they, they give out a loan, they just create money. So is there a sense of truth in there or is it completely false? They actually have to have like a set amount of reserves ready or whatnot. I mean, the process of them like giving out this loan can seem like just creating out thin air, but it has to be backed with something, right? So uh, what I mean by that is due to regulations in recent years or rather, I mean, in the last 100 years or so of banks, right? banks must, must hold sufficient uh, assets, essentially. Uh, 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 they must have things, uh, uh, sorry, they, they must have enough assets before they do, uh, do, do stuff like that, right? And, and while... Uh, they can temporarily borrow money, right? Their, their books must balance, right? They cannot just create stuff out of thin air. So for those of you who are, you know, kind of accounting in nature or, or you know, accountant nerds out there, do you understand what I mean? Which is, I can't just create something on one side of the balance sheet without having a balancing figure on the other side. Uh, usually, uh, 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 that, you know, you have to have that in the first place before you can tap into those things that look like creating money out of thin air, but actually you're just borrowing it, right? So that's kind of... Uh, and typically from a central bank uh, or uh, the banking industry as a whole. Mm. So that's kind of a different story. You cannot just create uh, uh, money out of the that way. Wow, what an interesting way to start the session already. Uh, Mr. Sunny, same question. What do banks actually do with your money? Uh, do you agree with Han? You have the same view as Han. Uh, and uh, ultimately, are they able to create money out of thin air? <laughs> yeah, very interesting um, topic and I, I, I actually know where you're coming from and I've seen those interviews that you've mentioned. Um, uh, one of the reasons I went to look for those um, this money out of thin air created by bank um, YouTube videos is because when I was attending another space um, and these were held by the speakers were people I follow on Twitter. So they're quite reputable in my in my point of view. And they were also talking about the same thing. So I kind of scratched my head because if you look at the textbook way of um, uh, banking it's it's in the most simplest form is what Han has mentioned um, people deposit money you take the money uh, the bank takes the money turns around and ends up the money itself and therefore makes a spread so in a very 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 basic form that's that's how banks make the money um, it's, a, it's kind of like a spread Ugh, sorry if you hear some drilling I have no idea why my neighbor is drilling at 9pm at night um, probably stressed out um but that is the most basic form. If you want to take it one step further and bring in what we call the macroeconomic uh, version of how banks make money and also how um, they may create money supply. Um, I won't say out of thin air, but there is a way of doing it. Then basically it's using what we call fractional reserve banking. Um, so I give you a, an example. It's a bit difficult sometimes to visualize this on, on Twitter space, but Imagine someone putting, let's say, $1,000 um, deposits in the bank. The bank then keeps aside 
uh, part of that money because the central bank requires the bank to keep, let's say, I just throw a number, 10% reserve requirement. Okay, So the bank keeps aside $100 in reserves and the bank lends out $900, uh, $900 in terms of new fresh loans. Okay, um, And Han is correct. If the bank um, doesn't loan it out, it will actually use the money and buy securities and such. Okay, So basically what we have now is on the liability side, $1,000 that the depositor has put in, the bank owes the depositor. On the asset side, the bank has made fresh loans of $900 while keeping $100 in reserves. So the balance sheet is balanced because it's $1,000, $1,000 asset liability. The so-called inverted commerce creation of additional money supply comes when the person who takes up the $900 loan, okay, he now basically um, um, spends it um, someone else receives the 900 in a very simple economy. Let's assume just there's another person only. The other person receives the 900 from the first person who takes out the loan. This second person who receives the 900, he goes to his bank and then he deposits the 900 into his bank, not the, not the original bank, but the second bank. So this 900 originally, which was a loan, now becomes a deposit in a second bank. And now the same thing happens in the second bank. The second bank taking this $900 loan turns around, keeps 10% of it, $90, and loans out basically, um, um, what's that second one? So second one would be 900 minus 90, 810. Okay, so he, the second bank reserve is 90, um, uh, loan creation is 810. And this process goes on and on. So the 810 now ends up in the hands of a third person. The third person puts it in a bank. The bank keeps it, uh, keeps 10%, lends out the remaining, and so on and so on and so on. So what, what this whole thing is when you then take into so-called aggregate the whole total amount of um, loans uh, and, and reserves on the so-called um, um, liability asset side, and you take the deposits on the assets uh, and the liability side. Okay, when you aggregate it all together, it should come out some. It should come out in in in, in the form of a multiple. Meaning to say that um, there is something called a, a, a simple uh, deposit multiplier. Okay, uh, the deposit multiplier formula is one divided by reserve requirement. So if your reserve requirement is ten percent, zero point one. 1 divided by 0 0.1 equals to 10. So your simple deposit multiplier is 10 times. What does it mean? Sounds technical. You The original depositor put in $1,000. This $1,000 through the process I've just elaborately explained to you, uh, bank A, going bank B, bank C, bank D, this creates in totality 10 times the number of money that was deposited in the first place. So the aggregate deposits now, okay, on the liability side of the banking system is now 1,000 times 10 because it's a money multiplier or deposit multiplier of 10. Okay. Um, some people call that the so-called bank creating money. Um, I think a better uh, a word for it is actually the bank actually uh, helps to generate money supply. So uh, because you have money supply, M1 is demand deposits. You know, so that, that, that inflates or that creates M1, for example. So 1,000 deposit creates $10,000 uh, of, de uh, of deposits eventually when this deposit makes its way through the system with a reserve requirement of, of 10%. Okay. So, so that, that is how the textbooks 
um, um, explains it. Okay, so the original simple framework, very correct. Turn around, take deposit, lend out. Second version is now we throw in a reserve requirement. Banks in aggregate, not, not, not individually, in aggregate, can actually create multiple times of money supply from an original um, bank deposit. The third version is what you brought up. And the third version is something which I told you kind of intrigued me because people whom I respect and, 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 and were following uh, all of a sudden started to talk about this bank creation and this is how bank creates money and so on. Yeah. To be honest, I've not known that, 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 that version until only recently. And I think, um, and no textbook talks about it and such. But when I look at it, I think this 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 gentleman, uh, Professor uh, Richard Warner, if I'm not wrong, um, he's the one who's who's talking about it, and he has empirical evidence because he's done this. He claims to have done this uh, empirical study, which is the first time in five thousand years for the banking system. He's done this study, and this proves it. So his argument basically is, banks, um, uh, when 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 a depositor goes to a bank. The depositor actually is selling an instrument to the bank, which is the loan document. Although the bank provides the paperwork and everything, it's basically the depositor is actually um, uh, issuing an IOU, uh, uh, or rather, it's is not it's not depositing its money to the bank. It's actually the depositor is is having an instrument. That instrument itself is now bought by the bank. So it's it it requires you to think almost opposite way of how we've been taught in the textbook and such. So um, uh, this uh, Professor Warner was basically saying that um, what the bank is basically doing is borrowing money from the depositor rather than deposit depositors depositing, which is wrong. He said banks are borrowing money from depositors. He says, no, the depositor issued uh, uh, um, uh, an, an instrument which the bank bought. Okay. Um, then I think Han brought up a very good question. Uh, uh, part which is how then how then does it balance if that's the case and so on i think that's the part which i still haven't really grasped you know and that's where some people do argue that you know banks are able to first uh, generate loans even without having deposits and basically it's just an accounting entry uh, a, a balancing entry to 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 um, make sure that the balance sheet is, is um, uh, so-called balanced, but there's actually no deposit to back it up. So I'm, I'm still grappling with that part, to be honest with you. Uh, but I know of people who are looking at it this way because this Professor Warner has brought it up. And I think that's where you're coming from, Cindy. So I, I do apologize. I know it's been one rambling kind of thing, but I do hope uh, it gives a bit of um, background to, to your question. No, actually, it's extremely interesting. You, you talked about the re reserve requirements just now, which uh, every single bank has. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, during the COVID pandemic, now Han can correct me on this, the reserve requirements for banks in the US fell as low to 0%, is it? And does that mean that, you know, uh, just now Mr. Sani was also talking about how using the reserves can uh, limit, limit the creation of loans or money supply or whatnot, if the reserve requirements are now 0%, does that mean that the, the banks can just you know, lend an unlimited supply of money? Am I missing something here, Han? No, you're not. No, I think uh, what Sunny mentioned, right? That individual bank cannot create money, right? But it can go so close to not holding any actual cash that the aggregate money in the economy is, is, is basically trending to infinity in that way. Right? Now, I'm not too sure about the Americans, 
But in Malaysia, we did something similar during COVID, right? Uh, I think Ben Agara in 2020, right at the peak of COVID, I think maybe early May, uh, reduced the what they call statutory reserve requirement for banks to hold cash uh, uh, um, just to make sure that you know, there's ample you know, liquidity in the economy. You know? So that we did that here. I mean, it was not zero. I think it was something like it went from 3% to 2%. Yes, those numbers sound small, but they're right. So, for example, a uh, classic example is if you look at what Maybank has, uh, you know, they have, uh, uh, you know, 400 billion of, of, of liabilities, i.e. deposits and, 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 and other liabilities. Uh, and they, they only own 25 billion of cash. So, actually, very, very small amount of cash. Um, but, but, yeah, so this to give everyone a sense that that's, that's what that does. It doesn't mean that there's money being just created up in air, but it does increase... What, what Mr. Sunny mentioned just now, which is aggregate amount of money in the economy. Right? So that's what happened over the COVID period. Uh, uh, just to, you know, central banks were just propping up liquidity, uh, you know, in a time where there's not much money moving around due to, well, COVID. Mm. Okay. Now, when the banks, they have the ability to do this, right? And we talked about, you know, reserve requirements falling to such a low percentage. And loans are one of the, uh, I would say, primary ways they earn money apart from uh, what you mentioned just now, them investing it into uh, a safer security such as short-term or long-term bond perhaps. Then how and why did Silicon Valley Bank, which we just observed over the last week, the 16th largest bank in the US, uh, collapse in the matter of just two days? We, 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 we spent the previous 20 to 30 minutes talking about you know how banks they are able to uh, use their reserve requirements to amplify uh, the aggregate supply of money in the system and then they are able to loan out much more money compared to uh, what their current deposit is. So then actually they are perceived to be generally more stable, okay, managed prudently or whatnot. But then how did this happen? You know, just two days. I think I will, I will pass the ball to Han first. Sir. Oh, uh, actually it's, it's a very easy... Easy, easy explanation to what happened in Silicon Valley Bank. Um, to to those that don't know, I'm, I'll be surprised if none of you here don't know. But you know, Silicon Valley Bank, a bank based in California, fairly large bank actually, two hundred billion assets you mentioned. Uh, but they only have like 16, 17 branches, so they are very much a a a, a, a niche bank for uh, you guessed it, Silicon Valley businesses, right? Uh, and based on those businesses, like they grew to be very large, right? Um, so three main reasons why they failed. Number one, they got a lot of deposits very quickly in 2020, 2021. No surprise from who, from, from those startups raising all kinds of money back then when, when liquidity was, was awash, lots of VCs pumping money into startups. Startups then put their money into Silicon Valley Bank as a depositor. Um, so if you think about it, right, you get too many deposits too quickly, right? There's only so many loans you can go give out prudently. You cannot just simply give everyone a home loan, everyone a car loan, everyone a business loan, right? You've got to be still quite man manageable with your loan book or measured with your loan book. So what Silicon Valley Bank did in 2020-21 when they got seriously a lot, like, so you imagine uh, they were less than 100 billion uh, uh, assets in 2019, right? And then it grew to over 200 in 2021. Uh, so if you imagine like uh, a bank like, uh, let's take a, a medium-sized bank in Malaysia, um, say RHB Bank, within one or two years, becoming bigger than any bank. Right? Literally, that, that's, what, that's what happened to this bank. Um, so they, this Silicon Valley Bank invested more than 
more than they lent out like, because that's that's the right thing to do to be fair right you don't simply lend to anyone just because you get a lot of deposits right so they went and bought so the, number one first reason they got too many deposits too quickly couldn't give out loans that fast therefore invested in it itself not a not a problem but second main reason why they went down is that they took they invested in long dated US government bonds when I what I mean by that is you know five-year, 10-year, 20-year government bonds, right? US government, very safe, low to no risk of default, basically. But they did it at a time when interest rates in the US were low, right? 1, 1%, 2%, even at the 10-year mark, right? So what happens to those bonds? They're very safe. They don't go bankrupt, right? Or the US government is not likely to go bankrupt. Well, everyone assumes so. But, right, imagine if you have a 10-year bond paying you 2% a year, right? When interest rates are zero, is that's fine. But when interest rates suddenly rise to, now it's five, right? It suddenly five? rise, to, yeah, four and a half, five. Uh, that bond, while it's very safe, doesn't look very attractive anymore. And for those of you who are, you know, finance one hundred and one, uh, you know, in university doing finance one hundred and one stuff, uh, you will know that as interest rates rise, you know, uh, the value of bonds uh, drops, especially fixed rate bonds. So fixed coupon bonds, right? So, uh, those the value of those bonds dropped in the market. And that in itself is not actually a problem because if you just hold those bonds, you know, the US government will pay you back the money. So it's not a, a credit issue, right? It's not like a credit loss defaults and stuff like that, right? Uh, so that in itself, that second reason itself is not the issue either. Just because your bonds lose value uh, is okay, not great, but okay. But the third problem was the big killer, which was uh, they had a very concentrated set of depositors um, and this goes back to the first reason, right? Which is where did those money come from? Startups uh, all stopped raising money throughout 2022. Started bleeding money, in fact. So started withdrawing money, right? Uh, over the course of the last year. Uh, so rather than deposit base going up, it started going down, right? Um, and as things go down, right? You, you, you have to start selling stuff when your cash depletes, at the bank level, right? So, you know, startups are removing their deposits to, you know, spend on salaries and stuff like that. And then you start, your, your reserve, your cash reserves start going down, which again, in itself is not a problem. Uh, but you then have to start selling those safe government securities, which are now worth less than they were because of interest rate rises, right? So you're selling them at a loss. Now, if you didn't sell them, you wouldn't be losing because you just hold them to the end, get your money back, get 2% per year, no problem. But because of cash reserves dropping, you then have to sell these long-dated government bonds at a loss. And where does the loss go? The loss goes, it gets taken out of your capital, right? Your, 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 your equity holders get hit first, obviously, right? And, 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 and for me, concentrated self-depositors, like not at all having the same problem, which is all having to burn money as startups. So cash going down, have to sell bonds at a loss, depleting your capital, creating doubt, in the market, oh, this bank has to sell bonds at a loss and starts depleting the capital. Then the rest of the startups get a bit jittery and they are, the jitters are accelerated by their VCs telling them to take better take money out, not sure this bank is safe. And then you get a classic bank run, right? So concentrated self-depositors, bank run super fast. Why? Because all API banking now, you can just withdraw at a click of a button rather than queue up tomorrow morning. And, and that's how a bank run can kill a bank, which had two other issues in itself already. So three main reasons. Number one, too many deposits, too much deposits too quickly, so have to invest. Problem number two, invest in 
long-dated government bonds, which in itself not a big problem, except when interest rates are rising and then the value of those bonds drop, which in itself is not a problem unless you have to sell it today rather than in five to ten years' time, which then becomes a problem when the third thing happens, which is a bank run. So classic bank run causing this bank to fail. I don't know if that, that summarized it enough. Wow, that was a very, very detailed but simple explanation. I, I completely understood what you just said. And, and it's very difficult for, because I read online also, it's very difficult for me to, uh, as a layman, really understand what's going on. La. And uh, from what you said just now, I would pinpoint the failure of this bank is on their uh, lack of diversification la, because you talked about them investing actually too much in long-term government bonds. Now, the question is, had they... Uh, diversified into shorter term bonds, let's say one year, two year treasuries, would that have been different? Would the, would the loss uh, be, be, be better mitigated or, or, or what? Yeah, I mean, I'll let Sunny have a go, but also after this, but I'll say it's a bit like those airline, uh, uh, you know, those airline like disaster shows where the airline crashes, right? Everything needs to go wrong, right? Uh, so every single error, right, in and itself is not going to kill a bank, right? Uh, bank run, no problem. If, you know, you got short dated bonds. Long dated bonds, no problem if you don't have a bank run. Um, uh, uh, bank run, no problem if you actually rather than have deposits, you have, you know, high quality loans. Uh, sorry, rather than those investments, you have high quality loans. So if you imagine those the kind of airline shows where, you know, everything, everything has to go wrong and everything did go wrong for this bank very quickly, right? And, and just so happened, bank run, actually normal bank run, they probably would have survived. Um, you know, if it lasted a couple of weeks, they just sort themselves out you know, raise more capital, but digital bank run, so API driven, one click of a button, withdraw all your money, kind of bank run. Uh, so it's a perfect storm. Lah. So yes, they could have been better diversified, uh, just like they could have been better diversified on their depositor base. Don't get, don't accept that many startup deposits. You can try and find some farmers or some manufacturers, etc. So all kinds of issues, uh, all confluenced on this, you know, basically, Airline crash. La. Yeah, like what you said, la, the perfect storm. Uh, Mr. Sunny, I'll pass the, pass the session to you. Same question. Uh, how, how did Silicon Valley collapse in just a matter of two days? I think, I think Han touched on all the relevant factors. So I think my contribution would probably to try and just run through it from uh, my perspective, which includes all these factors, uh, but maybe just coming from a slightly different uh, uh, um, side of it, la. let's put it that way. Okay, So um, I'll start off by saying that the majority, if not all banks in, in the world, adopt a very basic framework to make money. Okay, And the most simplest way of making money is to so-called uh, take on what we call technical term duration risk so what they do is they will deposit those deposit taking banks they will take deposits and typically when they take deposits it's either savings account fixed deposit and fixed deposit typically is maximum maybe 24 months at most okay and if you look at a normal yield curve a normal yield curve is upward sloping so therefore this short-term deposits which to a bank is a liability is basically the banks paying the cost of capital. The cost of acquiring this deposit is about two percent previously, lah. Yeah, two percent, and 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 even as low as half a percent inside. The easiest and fastest ways way for banks 
to make money in a upward sloping U curve is to then go to the other extreme of the U curve, the back end of the U curve, the 10, 20, 30 year bonds. Okay? Because in an upward sloping U curve, the back end of the U curve then gives you 3-4%. Right? So basically you take the money from the depositors and you then invest in an asset which is US Treasuries because it's safe and then you get 3-4%. So automatically you make the spread because you are earning 3-4% and you're paying your depositors maybe up to 2% maybe. So your spread is at least 100 basis point, 200 basis point, sometimes it can be 300 basis point. So that's that's a kind of like a, a free money because <laughs> borrow at 1-2 and then uh, invest at 3-4-5%. Okay. The only problem with this kind of strategy is not the spread, it's the duration. Because your liability, i.e. your depositors, those are basically almost what we call um, uh, very liquid type of investments. Depositors are only locked in for two years. Saving accounts, you want it tomorrow, you get it tomorrow, or even today if you go to the bank and so on, so so on and so forth. So very short term. Whereas you're locking yourself into assets which are like Han mentioned, 10, 15, 20, 30, even 30 year assets. Okay. So everything is fine if nothing happens to the depositor side. When there is a run on the bank and everybody lines up and then requires their deposit back in a very short period of time, especially as Han correctly mentioned, this digital bank run situation. Okay, The bank then has to supply the money to pay the depositors. It's their right. It's their own money. And then if the bank starts to run out of cash in hand, they have, they have to sell their assets in order to raise money to pay back the depositors. That's where the problem uh, lies, and not with, only with um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, but with many other banks. Because their assets are all locked into what we call long-term securities, very good securities, U.S. Treasuries, hold it to maturity, guaranteed to get back your principal. The problem is if you sell it before maturity. And as Han mentioned, because interest rates have risen, a lot of these securities were bought when interest rates were very low. Interest rates rise, your security or your bond price goes down. Some of these securities have lost 30, 40 or 50% of their value because of this so-called duration risk. The longer term your security, your 30-year security is basically very, very sensitive to interest rate. A small little rise in interest rate, your security drops by a lot. So the longer duration on your security, the, the more uh, downside you have because interest rates have risen. Okay, So downside on your price. So a lot of these banks were sitting on unrealized loss. Okay. Um, I keep telling people unrealized loss is no issue in hand management. There's no issue at all as unrealized loss. It's as though you meet someone and he tells you my liabilities are more than my assets. Oh, so you're technically bankrupt. Yes, I'm, te I'm technically bankrupt. Uh, are you worried? No, I'm worried. As long as my, the banks don't recall back my loans, I'm okay. <laughs> so you can have a situation where your liabilities ex exceed your assets as long as the creditors don't call back their loans all at one time then you know that that will be troublesome otherwise you are still okay so banks were like banks are banks operate in that manner as long as the uh, depositors don't run i can maintain this mis mismatch in duration mismatch in what we call maturity and i continue to receive what we call the um, the, the spread yeah so the problem is as mentioned earlier uh, there was a run on the bank um, and the bank then had to sell off 
uh, Silicon Valley Bank then had to sell off some of this kind of uh, bonds they were holding. They were grouped into a group called HTM, supposed to be held to maturity. Now they're forced to actually sell the bond midway through. And some of these bond prices were like half of what they were valued at. And when the market realized that these guys were selling, because no one in his right mind would want to sell bonds at half the price, especially U.S. Treasuries, which if you hold to maturity, you'll get 100% principal back. People then sniffed and they smelled blood. Okay, uh, um, And they said Silicon Valley Bank is in trouble because no bank in his right mind would do so. Okay, And true enough, that's when, um, um, as usual, on Twitter, everybody started to do their homework and so on. Because today... Um, and I'm just jumping the gun here. Um, the the situation we have today is very transparent. It's not like 2008 where we did not know what was on the balance sheet of banks because most of the risky items, most of the toxic assets back then were off balance sheet. And you could not tell whether this bank was actually a good bank or a bank full of lousy in investments because everything was off balance sheet. Today, Right after the Silicon Valley closure, you saw on Twitter people coming up with tables after tables after tables telling you this bank, unrealized loss, this amount, capital, this amount. Therefore, its unrealized loss over capital ratio is minus 110%. It's actually more losses than its capital. This bank, minus 70%. So basically, its unrealized loss has theoretically eaten up 70% of its capital because everything is now on balance sheet. Okay? So on one hand, it tell, it gives you a bit of comfort because you know which bank is good, which bank is no good. On the other hand, numbers are still scary because quite high. Okay? So what happened in Silicon Valley Bank, basically, uh, as Han correctly mentioned again, um, the cost of the run, the bank had to sell off assets which were actually valued uh, very low of, uh, compared to their original value. Um, they, they basically then had to seek assistant and and eventually closed down because they just couldn't meet um, the the depositors um, demand and such okay so so th the big question now is um, if this continues which is what we call systemic risk then you will find that basically other banks will start going down and that's why it's, it was absolutely important for the FDIC for uh, central bank federal reserve or the government to come out and say depositors don't worry uh, we will guarantee your deposit you know uh, and therefore don't need to go and run on the bank uh, you know because if you you know we don't want that to happen and this this is why we are moving very swiftly so in a nutshell the whole system itself this whole banking system works on the premise of confidence. As long as there's no run, whether it's today, tomorrow, the day after, 100 years before, 100 years, next 100 years, if this system still is around, as long as people have confidence in it and don't run on it, then the system holds up or the banking uh, framework holds up. Uh, the reason why there's such a thing is, as central banks and Federal Reserve, which people term it as lender of last resort, is because they have to set set uh, they have to step in to lend as a last resort whenever these things happen when confidence is low people start pulling money out okay so the system is like that but the composition of swiss a uh, swiss pool uh, uh, silicon valley bank uh, made it much more vulnerable very high niche in vcs okay um, and, and and so on and so forth
Okay, so basically, in a nutshell, I think that that's what happened. Wow, uh, Mr. Sunny, confidence. Ah, uh, this is a very uh, risky word to risky risky. I was just statement to rest upon now uh, because nowadays in this era, confidence is something very hard to get by. Uh. And we basically see the contagion just from Silicon Valley banks collapse. Because of this, we also had other banks like Signature Bank, uh, Silvergate Bank also, you know, collapsing in, in, in the same period of time also. But I want to just really pivot the session into a more local side of things. And I will, I will let Han take this one first. Should Malaysians be worried about this contagion? Or not? Because first of all, we've seen... All the three banks which have collapsed, okay, we mentioned just now, Silvergate, uh, Silicon Valley, and also uh, the last one is, uh, what's that what, What's that bank? Right? It is, let me quickly get the name. And it doesn't matter, as long as three banks collapse, okay. Then we had uh, a Swiss bank, which is Credit Suisse. Now, Credit Suisse, from what I've read, is a globally systematically important bank, you know. And um, they received a $50 billion lifeline loan from Swiss National Bank. Without, without it, I don't know, what could have happened? Maybe we, we, we could have seen another bank run in a different country. Now, let's put it to Malaysia's side. Should we be concerned? You know, because we have actually quite big banks over here. We have Maybank, Public Bank, and my parents, they are, they are shareholders of Public Bank and Maybank. You know, they, are, they are like all, very on on. They, they just keep investing in this bank only and, and they're not concerned at all. So I just want to ask you the question, should we be concerned or not? Oh. Famous last words, man. Um, uh, in short, I think uh, uh, we are somewhat insulated, right? Where there are pros and cons of being in Malaysia. So what is usually a con happens to be a little pro right now. What I mean by that is usually Malaysia, uh, especially our financial market, is not seen as you know a heavily outside of Malaysia exposed one. We're very insular in that sense. We you know, uh, and it's it's typically a, a, you know. A derogatory word to be used. Like, hey, look, Malaysia is so insular, right? Uh, not, not, not forward thinking, not outward, not outward looking, not investing heavily outside. You know, very exposed to Malaysia only. Uh, and but in this sense, I suppose it's a pro, right? Because you know, uh, not so much exposure. I think most banks came out uh, already the last two three days saying, hey, look, we, we barely have any exposure to Credit Suisse. They're all the way in Switzerland. Come on, uh, uh, and we are in Malaysia, like, uh, you know. Not that much exposure, fair enough, right? Uh, I think one of the things that might affect them, and this is something that uh, I guess not many people are aware, but I, I thought I'd just bring it to the forefront. Sorry, it's a bit geeky and it's a bit technical. Uh, but one of the big issues with uh, the Credit Suisse bailout, I guess best way to use it, or forced sale, is that there is a line of security within. Uh, Credit Suisse is, is uh, 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 sitting, supposed to be sitting above equity, hold, equity holders, bondholders of Credit Suisse, got wiped out, zeroed out. Right? There's, one, there's one special set of bonds, one tr tranche, one layer of bonds called AT1s, additional tier one capital bonds, uh, which should be senior to equity, but they got wiped out in the forced merger, I guess, forced acquisition of Credit Suisse by UBS. Uh, and this was orchestrated by obviously the, the, the Swiss National Bank right but that that raises a lot of questions about these bonds right like, hey how can you raise bonds if you're a bank you raise bonds to shore up your, your capital good for you but in this kind of scenario equity holders get paid out some more discounted value sure but still they got paid out something and you got zero as a bondholder how is that possible right and I'm going to tie this back to why it matters for Malaysia 
because Malaysian banks also uh, have used this kind of hybrid perpetual type bonds uh, uh, to, to shore up capital right, within their balance sheet. There are a, a number of Malaysian banks who use these kind of bonds, which in the Credit Suisse uh, context is what in, ended up being worthless. So if you're a, uh, these are called AT1s, right? If you're an AT1 bond investor or a perpetual uh, bond investor uh, uh, that, that you were, you're investing in these bonds, supposedly very safe, uh, but you can get zeroed out before an equity holder gets zeroed out. I think that really shakes confidence in, in these securities, of which you know, a number of uh, Malaysian banks do use them right, to shore up their capital base. Uh, so that's something to, 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 to note. I don't think it's too big, to be honest. It's probably less than 10% of, uh, of every single bank's uh, capital base. So even if these were wiped out, right, it barely touches uh, 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 Malaysian banks' capital base, not more than 10% for sure. So it should be still okay. But if you ask me, the, the biggest impact is not so much at the, uh, hey, like, you know, contagion is affecting our Malaysian bank, but more like, hey, like there's a bit of doubt on these kind of, uh, uh, this kind of uh, uh, capital sources that some of our banks are using. Right? But even then, it's a very, 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 very niche segment of the market who even knows these kind of things exist. Uh, and then no need to go too much into the fact that Malaysians have uh, raised capital using bonds that look like AT1s that, that's, that, that Credit Suisse had. Because it doesn't really affect our capital ratios too badly anyway, even if they were all wiped out, which would not be great. Uh, and there seems to be tremendous wiping out of um, of AT1 bonds, right, that, that, that some of our banks have used. But even if they completely were zeroed out uh, by investors, like say, ah, I'm going to sell all of them, no buyer, uh, I think our capital ratio is still quite strong. So no specific issue, even, you know, in a bank, CIB, public bank, uh, and bank alliance all use these, uh, all use these uh, 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 instruments to raise capital. I think it's still okay. So yeah. Okay. Um. Let Let me just drive the session into a more interesting point. Like, if in any case we had a bank run, and uh, people queuing up or people withdrawing money really quickly out from the banks itself, and and you mentioned just now that uh, uh, the question now that I want to ask is that will the banks be able to pay? Back all the uh, depositors, and and you know ultimately should we be be, be concerned or not? Hmm. How do I? How much to share here? Okay, I'll I'll share using numbers now, Right, best best way to share using numbers. Uh, most banks and and this ranges from bank to bank, but most banks have indeed uh, uh somewhere between five to ten percent of uh uh, dep- uh deposits covered by cash at hand means they can just you want the money back everybody wants their money back 5 to 10% of people should be able to get it back straight away then you'd be like hey Han what about the 90 95% people don't they get their money back too uh, I can tell you that no bank will be able to do that right because then they start going to the next layer which is still very safe and probably still uh, at par they can still sell it and, and raise cash to, to pay up depositors, you know, in the next 20, 30%, no problem. But then you start getting down to things that you can't sell easily, right? So uh, most banks have about half their book in super long-term stuff, right? Like things like home loans, right? Are you going to, how are you going to recall a home loan to pay off a depositor? That, that, that is not practical, not practicable, not executable, right? So uh, the short answer is, is no, right? You think about it. How, if, if half your book is in, 
long term uh, loans such as home loans or you know very long dated car loans five seven years uh, it's impossible right you can't call up someone and say hey sell your house today i need the money back so that i can uh, pay my depositor wanting all their money back uh, without and, and in a standalone basis it doesn't matter how big you are you can be the biggest bank in malaysia don't have to say the name but the biggest bank in malaysia all the way to a smaller bank right the, the likes of uh, 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 the, the smaller banks lah. Right. Uh, um, nobody can do it. No bank can do it. Right. Because the the and the the reason is very clear. Right. You can't just call someone and say, "Hey, sell your house because I need the home loan back now." So then, uh, I can pay off my depositors. Right. So then, you no single bank can do it on their own. They probably can't do it together. Also, right. Uh, if they all if this all happened, but that's where uh, two things come in. Uh, number one, uh, PIDM comes in. Right. To to say, hey, look, if if there is a bank run here in Malaysia. Uh, there is an institution which is a statutory body which can resolve this short-term issue. Because if you think about it, the home loan itself is fine. It's just that I can't liquidate it right now. But it's totally fine home loan. The home loan book is great. Uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, failure rates or default rates are so low. You know, 1% one, one to 2%. Yeah, it's a very high-quality book. But the, the problem is I just can't sell it right now. Right, I can't get the money. Right, uh, unless I very quickly securitize it, even if I can't call the people back for their home loans back, I can securitize it, sell it to the open market, that kind of stuff, raise some cash. But still, right, there's there's no orderly way to do this in a bank run scenario. So PIDM steps in and organizes this process, tells everyone, no worry, you will get your money back, you know, uh, up to two hundred fifty thousand uh, per each deposit account, uh, with with all my participating banks. So long story short, no bank can can withstand a, a, a bank run. Uh, of more than say 20, 30, 40% is it's, it's not possible uh, by nature, right? Uh, but there are things like PIDM, which again, separate issue, uh, PIDM itself only has 5 billion of assets. So they can't actually use their funds to pay you guys back, to pay any of us back. Think about it, 5 billion versus 2 trillion of deposits in Malaysia. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not possible. La. But they, they are a statutory body. They can raise funds from government, borrowing direct, issue debt, uh, guaranteed by government, stuff like that. So they can backstop, right? So they essentially behave uh, central bank-like uh, in their execution of uh, rescue of a bank. Sorry, there's a lot there, but happy to answer any specific issue on any specific thing I mentioned. No, no, actually, those are very interesting points you mentioned. And, and the, the part where you touched about PIDM, right? I was really shocked la, to just hear from you that uh, they have only 5 billion ring in assets i thought they have <laughs> uh, because they, they seem to assure you know almost they, they said on their website 96 like, percent of depositors are covered uh, but if you say there's trillions of ringgits in deposits but they only have five billion ringgit in their uh, uh, assets or whatnot uh, that's that's not really going to cover all the depositors like. but then you also talked about how they can actually lend money and that's literally going on to our next question. But before we go there, I just want to pass uh, the session to Mr. Sani. Mm -hmm. Same question. Uh, should Malaysians be concerned about this contagion? Or not? Specifically, this contagion, um, by right, no. Um, it's very, even in the US itself, um, the worry is basically concentrated in the medium-sized banks. Uh, the medium-sized banks are seen as more vulnerable um, uh, because of, of several issues. Like they're very concentrated in, uh, in lending in certain um, certain segments of the markets which have weakened VCs, tech, cryptos and such. 
Um, so in fact, we are seeing this kind of two-tier differentiation in the U.S. The medium term, medium term, but medium-sized banks are losing. People are losing some confidence in them, um, and deposits are moving over to the bigger, bigger-tier banks or, or more well-capitalized banks. Um, so it's not like two thousand and eight where everybody just lost confidence in every single bank, whether big, small, or medium size. This time around, is people are still confident with the big, big guys and shifting money over. In fact, I just read one headline. You know, Bank of America doesn't know what to do with all the money they're receiving. <laughs> so, so, so that's that's really um, tells you it's a very um, um, focused uh, type of 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 contagion um, and not widespread. So if it doesn't even spread to big banks in 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 the U.S., as long as banks here, institutions here don't hold some of these kind of um, banking shares, CS shares, and 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 capital and whatever uh, instrument, then I think it's fine. I don't see a reason why um, Malaysia banks would would actually be pressured. You know, if anything, it's more sentiment. It's just you and I investor looking uh, last night if. There was a huge sell-off in U.S. banks. You know, we just sell our our Malaysian bank stocks. You know, nothing to do with actual fundamentals. It's just more of sentiment driven. So that that's that's really it. But I also like to just add on to what Han has mentioned about um, banks uh, um, meeting deposit withdrawal. So very true. Um, banks will never be able to meet um, all withdrawals, especially sudden large withdrawals. Um, their their cash on hand will dry up very fast. Um, but they do have a, a few things up their sleeves. Um, I mean, better branded banks um, um, have the ability to go into the market over a short period of time, whether to issue. And again, I'm not hundred percent familiar with the Malaysian side, but I I do because I I lecture on um, um so called uh, macroeconomics and such. So so in a very general sense, banks. Uh, capital markets are open to banks, which are able to issue maybe commercial papers and such to tap liquidity in the so-called uh, uh, um, uh, capital markets. Um, they of course have um, the ability to go to the central bank to tap into what we call discount windows, which we saw in the U.S. massive amount of of a huge spike in the borrowing from from medium-sized banks in the U.S. through the discount window borrowing from the Federal Reserve. Um, so therefore, again, they they are able to obtain um uh, capital from 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 the Federal Reserve, um, and this is not really a bailout. It's just a facility for banks to tie through, um, um, periods of time where liquidity is squeezed and when they need liquidity. Um, of course, again, not probably not enough. So eventually, uh, it will lead to a point where there will be either bailouts, certain programs being introduced by the central bank, and eventually even the central bank bailing out the bank if it becomes uh, too 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 large. And sometimes central banks don't bail out the banks if they don't think that it's systemic in nature and they just allow the banks to close. Okay, and we must we must remember that in the U.S. itself, um, way back in the two thousand and eight, the number of banks which actually closed um was not a small number. Uh, we probably had about maybe four hundred over banks closing, if I remember the number correctly. Um, yeah, during two thousand and eight, and we always started off in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. The initial part of the crisis, uh, it was only about twenty or thirty banks closing first. Subsequent years, we had basically 
uh, a couple of hundred banks closing in the subsequent years after the, the initial peak of the crisis in 2008 and 2009. Yeah. And it's very clear, um, you know, when, when banks are under pressure like today, short term, they can survive because they are borrowing from the discount window from the central bank. They are tapping onto, onto capital, selling off some assets that they have. But if they don't solve the fundamental problem, which is people just don't want to bank with you anymore, people don't want to deposit with you, um, at the end of the day, you also still go down. Okay, and mind you, when you borrow from the central bank and you go to the market to tap capital, there's a cost to it. Even the central bank, Federal Reserve's latest scheme to help uh, banks, and I can't remember the acronym for it, was B Bank Fund Term Funding something. Um, that in itself is four point, if I'm not wrong, four point six percent. Okay, so can you imagine a bank who used to to pay deposit rates and and the cost of capital was only one two percent? Now I have to pay four and a half percent. So automatically, the bank's margins are squeezed. And so therefore, if it is not able to regain confidence from the market, not able to attract depositors to come back in again, um, they will eventually close down. So I would not be surprised at all if there are in the years ahead, a couple of dozen, probably even a couple of hundred, hundred banks in the US that will close down that are medium-sized banks. Nothing to be so-called um, extremely concerned about we saw it during 08. We saw it during the savings and loan crisis in the US in the 1980s. It's really just a reset of the situation after a very frothy uh, uh, situation in, in the past 10 years. A lot of misallocation of resources and now it's just payback time. Mm, yeah. From what you explained just now, uh, the message that I got is that those bigger banks and those major banks really don't have much to worry about like, because... In, in the event of these bank runs, which we have observed, if we notice all of these banks, they are all small to mid-tier banks. And a lot of deposits, like you mentioned just now, are now flowing into bigger banks. So therefore, uh, as Malaysians, I don't, I don't think we should be concerned like, because uh, the banks that we have here are actually quite, uh, quite major. But the next thing I want to talk about is something a bit more interesting as well. It's called PIDM. Uh, short for Perbadanan Insurance Deposit Malaysia. Now, this one, my first impression of this is that uh, uh, my deposits, 250000 is protected per depositor, per bank, meaning that, let's say, if I open uh, in bank A, I have 250 k that's insured. If I open in bank B, I put another 250 k there. So, both are insured. So, if my 500000 is insured if only I have if I have this much money. Um, so, I think I want to pass this to Han. What other essential facts do we need to know about this? And um, is Bank Negara Malaysia obligated to compensate all the PIDM covered depositors? Yeah, I think um, there's a few things to mention here, right? The first is that uh, 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 it's you get two hundred fifty thousand ringgit per per bank. So if you go to five banks, you get you know five times two hundred fifty thousand or one point two five million worth of protection. Uh, this has not been tested in, well, uh, it might have been uh, uh, in the uh, Asian financial crisis time. Maybe, Sunny, you have more there because that was a bit before my time. But in the last 20, 20, <laughs> Thank you in the last 20 25 years, PIDM has not been tested in this way, right? Like, there has not been a, uh, a bank failure without uh, uh, a bank of stepping in and getting uh, a, a kind of a merger or acquisition transaction happening. So there might have been uh, banks in trouble 
but uh, they, the, the problem was squashed by, you know, uh, uh, not forced, I shouldn't say forced, I should say uh, arranged, arranged mergers or acquisitions between banks. Uh, um, so uh, honestly, like the, the, this, the mechanism of PIDM, the fact that you do get 250000 uh, uh, per bank and, and specifically per specific type of account within a bank. So you get one for your own single account, you get a fresh 250 for a joint account, etc. Has not been tested right, over the last 20 years. Um, so that's, that's a, I don't say concern, wrong with you. It's like, I'm sure it will work uh, just like the FDIC does uh, when there's a bank failure in the US. It's just that it doesn't happen that often here. Uh, therefore, you know, uh, you, you know and if only if you're a nerd, you look into PIDM annual report to see you know, whether they do this kind of you know, drills, test, test to see, let's see how good we are in a bank run, uh, in a bank failure. And they do, and honestly, you read the PIDM report, they do kind of these simulations internally. So one hopes then, one should feel confident that they are ready to handle it. So that's one. Second thing is of note is to uh, ask yourself who is actually behind PIDM, right? If you look at PIDM and you didn't know who's behind them, you'd be very worried, right? You'd be like, hey, PIDM only has 5 billion of assets that they got from the various banks and insurance companies in Malaysia to provide this guarantee. Seems very low, 5 billion, when you have to guarantee, you know, a couple of trillion worth of deposits, right? Uh, and yes, you, you might not have to cover everyone because only those under 250, you have to cover fully. But there's still a lot of deposits you have to cover. Uh, but then you think about who's behind PIDM, right? The one thing to really remember is that it's, it's Ben Agara. <laughs> it's a statutory body behind PIDM. PIDM itself is a statutory body and Ben Agara is right behind PIDM. What I mean by that is if PIDM has not enough funds to just cover losses in a bank, that 5 billion is not enough, they can always just go to the market, right? And, you know, issue government securities uh, to, to raise funds to cover losses, to cover the insured amount to 250,000. Right. So, yeah. So, in short, uh, uh, if you look at it on its own, you'd be worried. But actually, you look at it like the system itself is designed to, to, to backstop itself. So, then the only question you should have, and I guess this is jumping ahead, is whether you have confidence in you know, the Central Bank of Malaysia itself or central banks in general. Uh, so, that's kind of my, my bit on it, um, on PIDM. Wow. I really like that we are diving deeper into the rabbit hole. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely get to the bottom of that. <laughs> uh, so, Mr. Sunny, same question. PIDM. I'm sure Singapore has also done something like this, right? Uh, what, what is it called? What does it stand for in Singapore's side? Uh, Singapore side, it will be the uh, insur Singapore Insurance SDIC, SDIC, if I remember correctly. Singapore Deposit Insurance Corporation, something like that. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. okay. But what, but also, I, also a similar amount, huh? No, 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 no. Seventy-five thousand only. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So, uh, so same amount, la, But you know, not dollar for dollar. Oh, oh. yes, yes, yes. In Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I thought Singaporeans are kiasu, not 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 like uh very reserved. Right? It seems like seventy-five thousand, not a lot of money. Not but by anyway, same question. Not, yeah, I don't know why it's seventy-five. I think previously I remember it was fifty. It was raised to seventy-five. I don't know whether it's got to do with. Maybe the banks are rated much higher. Um, maybe um, um, the system is quite solid, so there doesn't need to be. I'm not sure. Okay, that's more mere, mere just my own guess. Uh, I do remember though, and yes, I'm old enough to 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 have experienced the uh, '97 crisis. Not only yeah, uh, not only the '08 crisis, 
Um, and in the 97 crisis, um, I'm sorry, I, mean, I stand to be corrected. I don't know whether it was 97 or 08. Uh, probably 08, sorry, probably 08. Uh, we had clients back then um, who were worried about the situation because the US was actually blowing up. Um, and because I just joined at that time, uh, my current employer, who's a financial advisory firm, uh, clients were asking, what do we do? And and the recommendation was actually for clients who had very fairly large amounts to break up their deposits and put it into various banks if they felt um, that they couldn't sleep at night. Okay, So our general general advice was, we don't think anything's going to happen. Singapore banks are fairly uh, strong. Uh, but if you think that it's worrying you, um, you need to break up your deposits because it only covers, I think, back then 50,000, if I'm not wrong. If it's not 75, it's 50. And, and I, I don't know whether some clients did it, but I would be surprised if some of them did it. Okay. Um, but true enough, I think um, um, there is unlikely to be a case if there was a massive bank run. It's like, it's like insurance, you know. The insurance company sets premiums and, and, and they set the mortality rate and such because they don't assume that everybody dies at the same time. So they, they, never, they, they never prepare and keep cash at hand because you know it's, it, it, every year there's only a certain percentage of people that will die off. Okay. And similarly with, with banks in terms of its insurance, no one expects the whole banking system to collapse at the same time. Okay. Um, so PDIF, even with a minimum amount that they have, would be able to successfully probably handle one, I'm not sure, maybe two runs on banks or, or stuff like that. Uh, and of course, if it becomes systemic and it becomes industry-wide, I'm pretty sure Bank Negara will step in to support them. Okay, so it's 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 quite clear that they don't hold enough for the whole banking system. But like Han said, it's very obvious that uh, for reputational purpose, for stability purpose, um, the authority should step will step in. Yeah, I, I, the 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 part where you mentioned right, about the insurance right, is more of actually just the, uh, uh, I would say. How do I put this? A virtual safety net. Not exactly a safety net which you can fall upon because if you end up falling upon it, then you know if all the banks end up collapsing, then obviously a P- PIDM cannot protect all the, de- all the depositors, which is why they have to rely on Bank Negara Malaysia. But it's more of the feeling of being insured, like, like when you were to buy insurance and whatnot. So pretty interesting. Okay, I, I guess we'll move on to the next question. The recent disaster obviously caught the attention of the U.S. Federal Reserve, uh, who they have introduced the bank term funding program. So just now, Mr. Sunny, you also talked about this, uh, BTFP uh, for short. Now, this is uh, lending money to struggling banks to boost their liquidity. Now, a very interesting part which I observed also is the assets held by the Federal Reserve. Now, this has historically been quite an excellent indicator of the money supply in the economy, uh. And surprise, it rose by $300 billion in a week. So for some of you guys in the audience right there, you guys know, um, right now there's a lot of widespread rumors about the US dollar hyperinflating. I just want to really you know, ask the questions to these uh, speakers over here, the knowledgeable speakers. Is this a plausible scenario? Or not? I'll just pass it over to Han first. Han, go ahead. You are trying to pull out the maximalist in me. Uh, but I would say it's, it's very, very, very unlikely, right? Uh, uh, what I mean by that is, 
uh, you, you cannot extrapolate one week's worth of uh, uh, injecting liquidity into a very specific industry, the banking industry, as uh, uh, as uh, and extrapolate it over the next kind of even 10 weeks, let alone 100 weeks, to say, hey, look, if this continues over the next 100 weeks, uh, then yes, there'll be like 10 times more US dollars than there are right now. Uh, because it the, the 300 billion, uh, and for context, the Fed's liabilities, I think, are about 9 billion right now. So it's kind of, what's, 9 trillion, sorry, 9 trillion, 300 billion, you know, it's like 3% of the liabilities used in a week, right? And, uh, and in fact, it's still below the peak uh, which was about a year ago when they started typing slightly, right? So as it, for me, it's, it's a case of, uh, I think what the, 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 those guys are saying, those guys are betting on is like uh, uh, escalating crisis, right? Rather than just, oh, it's a crisis, it's going to escalate and exponentially escalate, meaning, okay, whatever has happened with Silicon Valley Bank will now affect all California banks next week, then will affect all regional banks, which it has, uh, until it was stopped last week by this 300 billion. Uh, and then it starts affecting, you know, everyone else, like JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Before going, you know, like, like super escalating to the entire economy. And I think, uh, while it's nice sometimes to have the thought experiment and, and think about, uh, you know, doomsday scenarios, I think that's, uh, I don't say unlikely, wrong with you. I think that's kind of fanciful, one. Second, like, I think uh, that is exactly what we call a black swan event. I'm not saying it never happened. I'm just saying that it's, it's not the most likely path that this, this will take, right? It might get worse, honestly. Right? We might see the fall of a, a big bank or two, right? But for me, that's kind of... Uh, I mean, Sunny pointed out just now, right? The situation is completely different this time to, 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 to 15 years ago when there was shit in banks that you don't even know where the shit is, can't even smell it. Uh, now it's a lot. It's very, very. They they've been unmasked and and stripped of their their tools over the last fifteen years. To like now they're very, very, very anything. Right, you can see where the shit is. So I for me like that kind of notion of uh, hyperinflation of US dollar is 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 a, basically a doomsday scenario. Now. So the question is, like, do you believe in doomsday scenarios? Yeah, doomsday scenarios is definitely something that. Uh, I would say keeps me awake at night. And an interesting point you mentioned just now is about the uh, Fed's balance sheet. You also touched on the uh, Fed's liabilities, which is over $9 trillion. That kind of surprised me. And its assets, which we spoke of just now, uh, it, you know, it added $300 billion. So it's roughly about you know, 2-3% only. It's still not a very big thing to be concerned about. Uh, so Mr. Sunny, same question. Uh, widespread rumours of US dollar hyperinflating. Is this a plausible scenario? Um, you know that Bitcoin was actually... Uh, well, the birth of Bitcoin was when? 2012? 2009. 2009. Yeah. Okay, 2009. So that was the crisis itself, right? Correct, correct. So yeah. it, Bitcoin was given birth to basically in, uh, in, in, in the midst of the crisis because people were afraid and uh, uh, Satoshi was basically smart enough to realize that people were afraid to put money in banks and needed something which was decentralized. Um, if today we had a repeat of the 2008 crisis when no one trusted any banks, everybody was trying to withdraw their money from their banks because no one knew which bank would go down, 
um, the fact that these toxic assets um, sat not only in US banks but across the world in many other banks. And, and mind you, one of the key reasons why the US banking crisis is not to me a systemic risk, but the credit risk uh, of credit risk failure would be a systemic risk. As you must remember, the more international a bank is, the more counterparties it deals with. And if that bank fails, what happens is those counterparties will then be involved in that failure indirectly or directly. If you are a bank which deals with Credit Suisse, Credit Suisse fails, okay, uh, I would be then asking, how much do you have with Credit Suisse? Are you liable to, 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 to fall um, because of your relationship with Credit Suisse? And that snowballs into what we call systemic risk. No one will trust the other party because we don't know whether you are you had dealt with credit risk and what is your exposure. So so that's systemic risk in the traditional sense and the real sense of it. Not some medium sized US banks having a run and such you know, it doesn't spread outside of that 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 um, um, sphere. Okay. So coming back to, to, to the banking sector, if we had that situation where international banks people lost trust in them, people were questioning very much at oh eight um, um, we don't know who to deal with. I'm going to pull every single thing out just in case. This bet that Bitcoin may go to what a million, right? Yeah, million? a million. Yeah, it's not it's not unfathomable if that was the case, because you are talking about massive amount of people who understand Bitcoin. It's just that probably didn't bother to do anything, and all of a sudden. Um, um, they realize that uh, I'm not I'm not comfortable to put money in the bank, and I want to put it out, and and I I I only have twenty one million bitcoins to 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 supply me with, uh, supply me so to say already, just because of a mini banking crisis in a certain portion of the U.S. financial system, we already see bitcoin moving out 60 percent from what twenty thousand to to no sorry nineteen thousand or seventeen thousand all the way to twenty eight. And that's one small segment of the U.S. banking sector, you know. And I assume these are people who are who are savvy in technology. They, you know, they pull out from uh, Silicon Valley Bank. They say fastest way is to put money into Bitcoin. Otherwise, where else do I put it? Yeah. So, so if if it was widespread, I would say yes. But today we are not facing that kind of. We are not facing the risk where where um, it's anything near to 08 in my, in, in my view itself. So therefore, um, I, I, I don't think we will reach that kind of levels. I do think if you tell me, can we reach all-time highs within the next three months, I think that's plausible. I mean, you say there's a probability of it happening, although I don't subscribe to it, but there's a, a probability it could happen because it's achievable, it's not that far the way the the level of volatility that Bitcoin has, although I I personally don't think it will happen, but it's a plausible thing. But a million, I don't think so. Hyper, you see, when you look at the the so called balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, which has gone up recently, spiked up, so to say, a lot of people got excited, saying that aha, it's the central bank now coming back to initiate quantitative easing, as this systemic risk spreads it's going to cause more and more quantitative easing to take place. Failing to realize that actually the spike up in the liquidity wasn't because quantitative tightening has 
reverse to become quantitative easing. It was merely because of the increase in the borrowing via down window. It was because of the new scheme that the Federal Reserve has introduced. So the spike up in liquidity was because of these short-term measures that were taken. Very similar to what the Bank of England did when they had the guilt crisis a couple of months ago. We saw basically liquidity in the UK spike up temporarily before then resuming uh, back down again. Okay, So similarly, uh, I do think that the liquidity in the US now currently is spiking up because of all the borrowings from the banks, to, uh, from the central bank. Okay, uh, But this actually is not a signal that uh, the US now has changed course and the Federal Reserve is now needing to print massive amount because we are in a crisis and therefore the massive amount will cause hyperinflation in uh, 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 in the US. Okay, And just to add on to this, if you remember, if there was a time where the US ought to have had hyperinflation, it was back in between 08 and 2013, 2014, and maybe even uh, 2020, 2020, 2021. Why? Because we started, not we, but the US started with a base of a trillion dollars. Hans mentioned correctly that it went up to $9 trillion. Um, that's 9x in terms of the supply of money that, that's being printed, so to say. If 9x of of money being printed doesn't cause US inflation to go even to double digit, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 you have to wonder why. And the answer is partly because US dollar is an international currency. Whatever is printed in the US, most of it may, maybe doesn't remain in the US. It flows out of the US. So the inflationary pressure is exported out. US is not Zimbabwe. If Zimbabwe printed nine times its local currency, that nine times of local currency remains within its borders, chasing after a fixed number of goods. That will cause hyperinflation. So it's actually quite difficult for the US to face what we call hyperinflation because of the US, the tradability of the US dollar, basically. Yeah, a lot of fantastic points you mentioned there, Mr. Sunny. And ultimately, uh, we'll settle on the point where the US dollar is unlikely to hyperinflate la, because unless it's a very bad black swan event. La. So Han, uh, I think you need to you need to go by 10.30, right? So you've got about three more minutes. <laughs> Sorry to, to, keep, to keep you on. Um, let's just go over the last question. I think it's an interesting one also. Mrs. Sunny has already gave you guys a hint about it also. Uh, there is this very famous crypto Twitter influencer right now. His name is called Balajis, if I'm not mistaken. And he's been betting on Bitcoin reaching to 1 million in 90 days. Mr. Sunny also talked about it just now. So, uh, I mean, off the surface, I, I don't think this is possible. But I just want to really have your quick thoughts on this before yeah. you go. No, actually, I don't have to dash off their steps. I extended my, I pushed my next meeting. So no worries. Oh, uh, okay. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there's been a bit of chatter in crypto spheres on, on this. I think, uh, personally, I don't think it'll happen in 90 days. Uh, I think it will happen in, in, in a number of years, but uh, in the next few years, but not in 90 days. Lah. So he's directionally correct, right? That uh, there is only one direction, right? It will happen, right? Uh, it's inevitable due to, uh, you know, various things, including the adoption rate of Bitcoin versus uh, any other so-called hard asset or limited supply asset. Uh, the, um, the portability, how easy it is to get into it by anyone, right? It's hard to buy a, 
bar of gold. I can't even think of where to go to get one right now. Uh, not that hard to get some Bitcoin. Uh, it, I mean, it, it's, it, it's a bit tacky, it's a bit hard, but you know, even if you're a, a, a super dinosaur, you just ask your grandson, hey, how do I, how do I get some Bitcoin? I heard, I heard I need some, right? Um, it's not that hard to get into it. And, and there's a clear use case, which is this, right? So uh, we are joking with my colleagues, like this is Bitcoin's time. Uh, I mean, the, the, the quantum, may, I may disagree with uh, Balaji, but it's Bitcoin's time, right? Severe like doubt in, in, in banking institutions, uh, exactly as it was in 2009, causing this, right? And uh, the long-term direction is clear, right? Which is uh, immutable money, versus, you know, uh, manipulatable, manipulatable money, right? Which is what, what all fiat currencies are. Uh, and, you know, everyone goes in that thing. Every, every country, every central bank goes in that direction in the history of time, right? It's just how long it takes. right? So I disagree on the 90 days, but fully agree on the direction, right? It will happen. Uh, it may not be as fast as he thinks, uh, but when it does happen, it will happen faster than we, we all think, right? So I think that's kind of in short... And the reasons are clear, right? Uh, owning your own money that cannot be inflated away is powerful, right? So that's kind of thing. And for those people who doubt, uh, I mean, uh, if we were in the States, there'll be a lot more doubt, sure. But, you know, if you look at the last three, four years, Lebanon, Turkey, Sri Lanka, Venezuela, right? Uh, I'm, I won't put Malaysia in this bucket yet, but, you know, we're, I would argue closer to that, the, this bucket of countries than we are to the States in terms of you know, the sophistication and, and strength of our financial system, right? So for me, uh, if you are sitting here in Malaysia, right, uh, uh, like what Balaji is trying to say is, uh, uh, is I'm using this one million, he, he outright said this, I'm using one million to sound the alarm bell. I also don't, don't know if it will be true or not, but I just want to sound the alarm bell to everyone out there. That, you know, if there's a chance of this happening, just get on the lifeboat, get a little... And ensure yourself from this happening. Right? Uh, I think he also doesn't really believe it's happening, going to happen, but he's going to benefit obviously from all the chatter. Look, we're even talking about it in this room, in this space, right? But also, he's he's basically doing this as a point to get the word across that, right? The the theory is sound, right? Uh, protection against uh, hyperinflation, right? It's happened in many countries globally already, right? Uh, and whoever held Bitcoin. Uh, uh, was better off than those who did not. So he, the, the point of him making those bets or his proclamations is to sound the alarm. And I think he's done a good job there. Yeah, in terms of, uh, in Malaysia's perspective, we're not like the US, so I guess ultimately we have to be a bit more worried. And you also talked about inflation just now. Uh, fun fact, guys, Argentina is also one of the countries that is suffering from very high inflation. I think I wrote about it recently also. Uh, had a hundred percent inflation uh, this year alone, one hundred percent, guys. And we thought, you know, Malaysia's inflation three four percent, but it actually feels like twenty thirty percent is already high. Imagine what's happening to Argentina right now. I think uh, like a like a carton of milk went up four or five times in price in a matter of just uh, a span of in the span of just a few weeks, la, Which goes to show the importance of holding a different form of money. In this case, Bitcoin. Now, as much as possible, I want to really look at Bitcoin in an objective sense. I don't want to be like, a, you know, a, a maximalist where you just shield Bitcoin without any reason. Um, I just want to keep you on the ball, uh, Han, before I pass it over to Mrs. Sunny. 
is this really a, a genuine solution to the banking crisis? You know? Is Bitcoin a genuine solution? Because people can counter it actually by saying that, hey, you know, companies like MicroStrategy, the Winklevoss twins, uh, they actually own a huge sum of Bitcoin. Uh, MicroStrategy being about 129 to 130,000 Bitcoin. And with Bitcoin's fixed supply of 21 million, uh, if in any case where the US dollar hyperinflates, which is unlikely, and Bitcoin reaches 1 million, then essentially we're going back to a really, I would say, capitalistic society where a micro-strategy or micro-sailor can just dictate what's going to happen in the market right now because he has uh, close to 1% of the total supply of Bitcoin. So what do you think about this, Han? Yeah, I think, I mean, you asked the question just now, right? Is it really the case? I think two separate things there, right? One is, uh, uh, what's good? If in a world where your currency is being hyperinflated, gold has always been good. Um, um, property, if if that hyperinflation doesn't come with violence, it's probably okay, right? If it comes with violence and, and protests and stuff, then property is probably not okay, right? But gold always good, right? Has been good for thousands of years. Uh, Bitcoin, uh, for the various reasons I mentioned, I don't say it's better. I say it's better for some people, right? So, classic example, I have no idea where I can go to buy some gold right now. I guess Pokong. Uh, but but you, you can, I mean like uh, uh, I don't know if it can be even traded. I don't know who's going to buy. It. Let's say I I I I I head down to Singapore to sell some gold because well, for whatever reason I don't know if someone's going to accept the Pokong gold. Sure, there will be some people, but like in terms of acceptability, uh, uh, Bitcoin may be better. And in terms of uh, real ability and in a world where there's no internet, gold's better, right? For example. Uh, but again, like to each its own. Right. Until something better comes along, we, there, we need a tool to solve you know, hyperinflation right? or to, to protect ourselves from hyperinflation. Uh, for now, Bitcoin seems as good a tool as any. Right? And uh, I'd say uh, 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 it's a bit like an insurance contract. Right? Like you hope you never have to use it. You, know, you hope it never has to go 30 times, 40 times uh, 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 because the, the, you know, your, your country went when hyperinflation area, right? But uh, you are not going to regret having one or two percent of your net worth in Bitcoin if that happens, right? So that's kind of what I will say about that. Um, in terms of concentration risk, I think, uh, 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 you know, uh, I think the bigger risk is not so much in the people holding uh, um, uh, Bitcoin. It's more the people uh, controlling the network. So actually, uh, for those who are Bitcoin inclined, you know, the bigger risk is in 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 mining control rather than uh, asset control, right? The people who control the miners, right? There's three big ones who control more than fifty percent of the mining power. So that's kind of the bigger concern. Again, uh, until something better comes along, the the you have as in uh, don't think of the perfect solution. Just think of good enough right now, right? And think of what's good, what's better, what's a lot better than you know losing your entire net worth uh, due to hyperinflation. Yeah, essentially, we, we also talked about the, I would say, the essence of diversification, not just putting your money inside Bitcoin itself, maybe gold or something. But the, I would say the biggest con about gold is that sometimes you go to all those a bit more shadier sellers, right? You don't, you don't actually know if they're selling you real gold or not. And then at the end of the day, it has also a severe problem with portability. I mean, just try carrying one kilogram of gold bar into a plane, transporting it. Yeah, it's kind of unimaginable, this type of things. 
So yeah, Mr. Sani, a uh, similar question. What's your perspective on this? Is Bitcoin genuinely a solution to the uh, banking crisis? Uh, what, what do you think? I think if, if there's one lesson we can draw from um, the most recent banking crisis is increasingly people are more and more comfortable to look at Bitcoin as a safe haven and maybe even like an ego because the way Bitcoin moves, you know, before the crisis in the US itself, the banking crisis, Bitcoin was tracking um, NASDAQ very closely. It was considered to be a risky asset. Uh, on days where the NASDAQ rose, it rose. On days where the NASDAQ declined, it declined. Uh, but when the crisis hit, Bitcoin all of a sudden <clears throat> took this new, new characteristic which was mirroring that of a safe haven like gold. So in the crisis itself, we saw treasury demand go up. We saw gold demand go up. We saw Bitcoin demand go up. We even saw tokenized diamond demand go up. So people were not buying diamonds because diamonds are expensive. So they buy tokenized diamonds, which are diamonds which are um, tokenized to smaller smaller amounts. Um, so all of a sudden, Bitcoin took on this safe haven uh, characteristic, which means that people do place some level or increasingly place some level of, of, of safe havenness uh, on, on, on Bitcoin itself. So I think if anything, that that acceptance of Bitcoin as a safe haven will only grow. And, and I think this is demonstrated in countries where Han mentioned. I think if we dig deeper and, and, and I don't, maybe there's not enough news on it, but if you look at Lebanon, for example, where I've, um, I know some people who are there and Bitcoin is used um, um, quite extensively apart from US dollars um, in, certain, in many places where there's hyperinflation, currency, local currency loses its, its, its credibility and value. Uh, people have used Bitcoin as, as, as a way of um, um, transacting, as a way of keeping their wealth uh, um, you know, rather than keeping it in a local currency. So all in all, it's 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 an evolution. Uh, it's it's very young. I, I never have we ever witnessed the birth of an asset in front of our eyes. Um, you know, so it's historical in nature. You told me earlier that the Bitcoin was invented or or, or it came out in two thousand and nine. Uh, you know, vis a vis that of fiat currency, which is hundreds of years. That vis a vis that of gold, which is thousands of years ago, Bitcoin is just really at its infancy. So, so there is still a lot that we need to learn about it. But I and in, and I think in itself, Bitcoin is also trying to find where it serves its purpose the best, whether as a transactional currency, whether as a safe haven, uh, or maybe even a hybrid of the two. We don't know yet, but it is basically starting to show certain characteristics uh, which I think um, uh, is true. Safe havenness is one of the key ones. Yeah. And and just, just to stay on this topic, right? If there is like, a, let's say, a person who's completely new to, to crypto and they totally did not do any research or whatnot, they just say, you know, I want to acquire some Bitcoin, what would be the optimum percentage of their net worth? Say like they are, you know, I don't know, maybe like a fresh grad. Uh, if you are a fresh grad, let's say right now, Mr. Sunny, although you are far away from a fresh grad, 
but but let's say let's say you're a fresh grad, okay, and you're earning this amount of salary, maybe two or three k in ring it terms, uh, How many percent of your net worth would you actually diversify into crypto? And and let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Uh. Let's say you are at a, a a forty to fifty year old stage, which you are currently. <laughs> so, uh, what's your what what's what's the percentage of your net worth that you would uh, diversify into crypto? So first question, fresh grad, young, took two to three k salary. Uh, let's go. Let's answer that one first. The general, and this again from articles from the US, where US financial advisors have stated they would actually um, allocate up to about 3% in cryptocurrencies for their clients' portfolio. We have taken that as the benchmark. So over on our side also, we actually recommend clients roughly about 3 maximum about 5 uh, around there. Okay. Um, and, and that is a, a guideline that, that some clients basically, because they, they know what they're getting into there they themselves dabble in crypto so they say you know i can take a bit more higher fine that's really a case-to-case basis but in general three to five percent will be the max uh, we would actually recommend when you look at age group then typically speaking um, if you're younger you typically can get you typically can take slightly higher risk than someone who's older like myself okay (laughs) so so you would assume that the younger generation maybe that 3 to 5% can be pushed up, maybe even up to 10%. Because in general, basically, if anything goes wrong, you have time to hang on to it. And in, in general sense, we typically don't ask any clients to hold any single asset more than 10%. Anything goes wrong, at least it's only 10% of your portfolio. Okay, So 10% seems to be the top end of you're young, you can take risks, you, know, you have a lot of time to hang on if things goes wrong, things go wrong, 10% looks to be the top end. Okay. And this is really just a very, um, um, it's not financial advice. This is really just a guideline. And that 10% starts to go down as you grow older. Um, so at my age, you probably don't want to hold more than 3% or you know, no more than 5% as, as part of your portfolio. So I think that's the way officially uh, from a financial planning perspective, you would look at it. Mm, very interesting. Han, you also have similar, similar qualifications to Mrs. Sunny. So I'll pass the same question to you. Uh, fresh grad, two to two to three k salary in ringgit terms. How many percent of their net worth uh, should they allocate? Obviously, not financial advice, like And also, jump forward in time, forty fifty years old. How many percent as well? Mm, okay, good one. Um, I guess I'll answer in two ways. I think everybody should have some crypto, specifically Bitcoin, and maybe one or two others, uh, in their uh, core portfolio, right? Or you know, if, let's say you've got a diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds. Etc. You you need to have some uh, crypto, specifically Bitcoin and one or two others. Um, doesn't matter if you are a young person starting out your journey, or if you are a retiree, right? For the sole reason, and and I think Sunny alluded to it earlier, for the sole reason that uh, uh it behaves very differently from all other asset classes. In some sometimes it it correlates with risk 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 asset classes. In crisis, in certain crises crises, it does not right. It actually is highly negatively correlated. Crisis happens, it's a safe haven. So, um, and because of this, right, uh, because of this, right, even if you're a retiree, you need some. Because actually having some, and let's say 1% for a retiree, actually reduces your volatility, right? Because in a time of heavy crisis, high volatility, suddenly, uh, a little bit of Bitcoin, a little bit of Bitcoin, Ether or one or two more, right? 1% say, actually reduces your portfolio volatility uh, uh, alongside increasing your return. So actually, you can reduce your risk by having 
uh, one, uh, say one or two percent Bitcoin, Ethereum, other cryptos uh, in your portfolio, right? Even if you're a retiree, you're 70 years old, right? Uh, uh, net net, sharp ratios are higher, uh, drawdowns are lower, uh, and risk is actually lower, right? So for me, uh, everyone needs to have some, right? I mean, I'm even talking about pension funds, etc. Uh, obviously, uh, like uh, the more you add due to the volatility of crypto, uh, the uh, the the less uh, that that kind of lower volatility effect happens, and then you you get on you take on a little bit more volatility when you start getting to the three, five, ten percent. Uh, but then you get the higher returns, right, from uh, this highly risky asset, right? So high risk, high returns start mattering uh, for younger people. For younger people, you see, you got to start thinking about three, four, five percent. Obviously, depends on your specific situation. Don't go straight into it uh, when you don't have an emergency fund, stuff like that, right? I'm just talking about, hey, if you're structuring your portfolio, you have enough for, to build your portfolio. Young person, you've got to look at somewhere between 5 to 10%. But everybody needs to have at least one. I think 1% is the magic number for reducing volatility effect, right? One or two, somewhere between 1% to 2% actually reduces your volatility uh, due to negative correlation, right? So that's, hopefully that's a good enough answer. Uh, not financial advice, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, obviously, obviously, we have to keep saying this lah. It's not financial advice, despite the uh, qualifications of uh, these two speakers. And all, all we wanted to provide is just, I would say, a, a different perspective, a different flavor. Where uh, some of you guys who are a bit more skept skeptical towards crypto, because the entire 2022, 2021 itself, I mean, twenty twenty two itself, has been devastating to crypto lah. And and now. When Malaysians look at it, right, they'll be like, "Are you trying to promote a scam or not?" So we're going back, I would say, into the dark ages, and we're just here to, you know, kind of open a different perspective for you guys to uh, look into it. We're not trying to encourage you to you guys to buy or sell. Sorry, sorry, just want to yeah. interrupt you there. The, I mean, the the issues yeah. with crypto over the last twelve months actually have very little to do with crypto, right? Uh, they have they exactly. have to do with exactly. with poor governance. Uh, lack of controls, lack of regulation. This is why regulators need to come in and regulate this space properly so that, you know, regular guys like myself, or, you know, investment people, uh, people giving advice on investing, even your casual investor can safely uh, consider things like sharp ratios and stuff, right? Without having to worry about, you know, bad actors in the space, right? That's why I really encourage regulators to get in uh, and, and, and sort this out. Right. Because the problems of crypto the last 12 months have not, almost been nothing to do with crypto, right? It's been to do with fraud. It's been to do with poor risk management, bad governance, lack of regulation, right? Which, to be fair, happens in pretty much every single asset class when it gets started. So not crypto-specific fault. Lah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. When you look at Bitcoin's fundamentals, it hasn't changed since the, uh, the, the when it was born. Lah. So I would say the sentiment or the uh, viewpoints which other people have is currently a bit uh, changed because of the market sentiment obviously. Now we do have a, a speaker up here. Harif, how are you doing? Um, I'm sure you have a question. You can go ahead and ask the question. By the way guys, any, anybody in the audience, if you guys have any questions, do just request to be a speaker. I'll proof you guys and uh, we'll get the questions going. Yeah, Harif, welcome to the session. Go Hi, ahead. Um, so I have a question for Sunny. Um, so I'd like to ask, right, since uh, this is something that we are approaching towards the new era of tokenization where real-world assets are being tokenized. And you mentioned that uh, you've seen that, you know, uh, there, have been, there have been some investment products like uh, tokenized, uh, tokenized diamonds as a way to hedge against inflation. Um, do you see any kind of real-world assets is also trying to provide this kind of uh, instrument to hedge against the inflation or 
or to provide a better alternative uh, uh, investment product to, to hedge against inflation. Um, so what, what we've seen is that, you know, tokenization can really reduce the investment entry, can uh, can make the investments uh, to be more divisible or tranche. And do we see this as a mainstream adoption this soon? Yeah, okay. Um, thanks for the question. Um, I mean, for the viewers, or not viewers, for the listeners who don't really um, um, have heard have, or haven't heard of tokenization, um, this is basically just a way of um, making an, a particular asset um, the entry level much lower. I'll give you one example. Huh? Uh, we have been following a particular hedge fund, a very good hedge fund, um, very good returns, quant-driven. So everything about it is quite spectacular, award-winning and such. The only pr- problem is that, you know, it's like a, um, there are certain classes within the hedge fund. It's like minimum $3 million and minimum $1 million just to get in for one single ticket. Um, so we've never gotten it on board for our clients because we don't want our clients to allocate a million dollars to it. And then what happened was recently we got in touch with a platform um, which does tokenization. So basically they will take that fund and they have taken that fund in fact. They will actually wrap it, so so to say, and then they will break it up. That one million entry level, they'll break it up into smaller uh, pieces so now if you want to buy that fund it's actually tokenized into small little tokens of 50,000 US dollars so you basically can gain access to something like that with a much smaller entry level compared to the original asset which was a, a very high entry level so this is something which is going on in the real world today a lot a lot of it is, uh, is in the real estate world buildings which cost millions of dollars as an investor it's very hard for you to get in so you tokenize the building and you can even tokenize it to ten thousand fifty thousand and you in order to gain access to that building meaning you say in order to get an exposure to that building you only have to pay fifty thousand dollars okay uh, the diamonds I, I, example i quoted was something i read uh, on an article diamonds are number one not easy to find and buy you don't you know no one's a real expert in it but once you have someone who tokenizes a diamond he ensures that the diamond is genuine and such um, you just need to buy one of the tokens maybe it could be even one thousand dollars so it allows you to gain access to a lot of these assets which may sometimes not be accessible especially for for lower uh, retail investors not high net worth investors okay now going on to what assets can be tokenized almost everything can be tokenized if you're talking about assets that are inflationary anti-inflationary counter-inflationary we all know they are typical assets like um, um, uh, gold um, you know uh, we have assets like of course um, hard assets real estate um, there are even some bonds, uh, the tips, tips bonds. These are bonds which the yields are adjusted um, as CPI goes up. You know, so there are, and some of these things are not available very um, um, easily. Um, real estate, even the tips market, for example, not available to 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 the normal common man on the street. But I I'm assuming once you tokenize it, it becomes at a low level. 
a million ring, uh, a million, a thousand dollars, a thousand ringgit, five thousand ringgit, yeah, just to get uh, uh, an exposure to to a, a tips bond to some real estate, uh, then you are able to to hedge against inflation. Same thing with Bitcoin. Um, um, at the current moment, Bitcoin can be fractionalized into very very small amount sets and stuff like that. Okay, uh, but who knows? Maybe uh, some people are not savvy enough to go and open up a, uh, an account. Um, so maybe an alternative is to actually find a way they can actually uh, gain access to it by, by, by uh, uh, someone who does this tokenization or something like that. So, so, so all these assets are, are, are um, anti-inflationary. Um, it's whether you can gain access, access to it. Any other assets apart from this? Actually, it's 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 really a, a wide range. I, I the one I mentioned are those few which I kind of know of. Maybe you would know of some other assets, but typically those are the traditional ones uh, um, that one would assume um, in an inflationary environment you would you would look for, la. Yeah, uh, I think Han is about to uh, leave. Have to leave the space already. Yeah, I gotta that? run. But I uh, just wanted to add to that that uh, Harif, like great Go question. Ahead. I think in short, right. Uh, uh, tokenization, the act of tokenization has been done previously over the last 30 years by something called unitization. So, you know, uh, Sunny mentioned real estate, right? There are, there are such things as real estate investment trusts created, you know, dec- a few decades ago. Uh, if it can be unitized, it can be tokenized. The only difference between unitization and tokenization, in theory, should be one, one is done on a, you know, a internal Excel sheet at some fund manager. The other is done on the blockchain. And then the second is that, in theory, and it need not be the case, but tokenization should allow for decentralization, right? So, uh, 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 versus unitization, which is held by uh, a trustee or fund manager, you can have it on a decentralized uh, uh, contract rather than a specific entity. So for me, the best way to think about it is, if it can be unitized, i.e. in a unit trust, it can be tokenized. Yeah, good points over there, lah, Han. Uh, thank you so much, Han. I think I think I'll let you yeah, go first. Run. Thank sorry, you so guys. much for the session. Great chatting. Hey, hey, no worries, Han. Uh, so, sorry about earlier, lah, because of my phone dying and everything. No worries. I got perhaps I, I got to run, but <laughs> you guys keep going. Catch you at the next one. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I'll see you soon, see you, Han. Sunny. See you, Sinji. See you, everyone. Bye. All right. See you. Bye. Okay, Mr. Sunny, uh, I guess we are also approaching the end of our session already. Lah. But, but, but let's, let's just quickly wrap up, wrap up the session to make sure this is uh, you know, uh, beneficial for everyone. Obviously, because of uh, my phone's failure just now, we didn't manage to get in quite a lot of listeners. But for those of you who are still listening right now, uh, I just want to poke and prod Mr. Sunny's head a bit. Okay, <laughs> let, let's, let's just you know, build... Uh, 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 I, I don't know, let's just build a portfolio. Okay? That... that, that it's totally not financial advice. Let's just do it for fun. Okay. And let's ima- say imaginary, I have about, um, I saved up about, let's say, 20,000 ringgit right now. Uh, and at, at my current age group, what's the thing that I've got to pay attention to? I'll just, le- I'll just pose this question to you. Go ahead. Well, uh, okay. So investing is basically um, much more, much more, um, elaborate than this, you you know if you really do it the correct way, you need to look at your risk profile. We need to look at your look at your financial objectives, uh, and so on and so on. And then we will come up with a portfolio how you would invest your twenty thousand Yeah, uh, but if it's just purely 
let's assume Cetrus, Paribus, everything else constant. If you have 20,000, what, what would you do with it now? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that that's the question. Um, so we need to, we just need to keep everything else constant and out of the picture and just focus on this. Uh, yeah? So we don't assume risk profile and anything else. Uh, am I right to, to approach it that way? Yeah, sure. Age group, let's put, let's put it in terms of like uh, millennial age, maybe 20 to 30 years old. <laughs> and after that, uh, perhaps we go to the other end of the spectrum and we add another zero behind. So instead of 20,000, <laughs> 200,000. So, so yeah, let, let's just tackle these two, these two end of the spectrums. Uh, 20,000 for, for, for a millennial guy or girl. Uh, I'm assuming their risk profile is that since they are young, they are able to take a higher risk. So how would we uh, build this a portfolio for this imaginary person? Well, basically, we tend to manage portfolios in terms of what we call core satellites. Core are more long-term holdings. Satellites are more short-term holdings. Core holdings, basically, is about 70% and satellite holdings are 30% um, um, by default for us. If you are young, we would assume that basically you'll be able to take on more satellites. Okay, And satellites, like I said, there are more shorter-term bets uh, that you want to take on. Core holdings are there because they, they make up your foundation, which by right shouldn't change so much over the long run. So core holdings, typically, we would actually have um, geographical allocations. You must be diversified over US, Europe, emerging markets. So when your core holdings are in these three countries, um, let's say you take 60% or 50%, you divide it over these three regions, you would have roughly a geographical, geographically well-diversified portfolio, one half of it. But because you're young, you can take higher bets. Okay, Therefore, your tactical part of it, it could be 30%, it could go up all the way up to 50%. Let's divide the 50% into five categories or five investments to put our money into okay and these bets are typically more multi-year kind of bets um, and these bets can be thematical in nature uh, what we are recommending to people basically is at this particular point where we think that the markets may still have some downside it's probably good to just hang on for a while more because it's always good to enter the markets when the markets have sold off and therefore valuations are good so the big question is, what do I buy when the markets sell off? We think that basically a few teams will be very strong in the future. Teams that, got, that has got to do with so-called blockchain, digitization, Web3, metaverse and such. So you would want to pick up in one of those allocations, one of the five allocations I mentioned to you, you would probably want to pick up and put uh, maybe 10 or even up to 15, 20% into such an allocation. We think that basically anything that's got to do with climate change, decarbonization of the economy, this is a no-brainer. It's a question of basically um, um, uh, how fast um, this this team evolves. Uh, so, so, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Is EVs is EVs considered uh, in, in EV this category? Is of, EV is part of it. Yeah. So basically, um, it's driven. The reason why we believe a lot in this team is because it's one of the rare instances where both the public sector and the private sector are driving this team. You not only have um, um, individual um, um, uh, individuals, you have 
pension funds, you have institutions all climbing on board. We are going to uh, ensure that we invest in green and stuff, you know, and the government says, oh, by 2030, 2040, all cars must be basically non-combustion engine cars, you know, we're going to go electric. So there are targets to be met, a lot of investments to be made uh, to see those, to see through those targets itself. Okay, so so everybody's on board this, and I don't think it's derailed. It's been derailed somewhat, most recently, because of this crisis, energy crisis. But definitely, over the long run, that just means that the catch up has to be much much more now. Okay, so this is one team which we believe in. So we've got the digitization, we've got the decarbonization, and and there is a team which is the commodity supercycle team. We believe that basically once you want to decarbonize the global economy, you would actually need to use up a lot of uh, uh, commodities to do so. You're just you're overhauling the whole global economy now to be that of a low-carbon uh, economy. And that takes but, up a lot of energy. Commodities in terms of like, say, oil? Uh, yeah. Okay. yeah. So, so, to, so um, here I'm talking more of all the hard commodities, raw materials and such. Okay. Mm, mm, okay. But the flip side of it is another team. So we have kind of like a fourth team, which is the demographic team and the aging population. Um, certain countries um, are aging much faster um, and so on. And again, um, um, plus, plus this, this, this commodity team is also driven by uh, soft commodities. As the, I mean, I don't know whether anybody here realizes that as temperature rises, um, our production of grain um, of food actually decreases. You know, every one degree Celsius of a rise in 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 in, in temperature reduces. For example, uh, I think grain production by maybe up to ten percent, and all other com- soft commodities will be impacted also. So all of this kind of tie- ties in. Um, so there are a few couple of teams which we 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 think are uh, are very um, solid. Uh, I mentioned decarbonization. Uh, I mentioned digitization, supercycle, aging, aging population, and such. So these teams, um, if you want to profit, I think it's when the market is throwing the baby out with the bathwater, which is when they are in a panic mode, which I think will come very soon. And you know, as we capitulate from the current situation, and and those, so that's a time where you ought to go in and 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 start picking up uh, some of the gems. And, and, and even sometimes not even hold it maybe three, four years, you can. That's We think you're going to make a lot of money, but maybe even hold it a bit longer than that. Yeah, those are very good answers over there. Like. And what of like, uh, let's say we go for simpler ones, we just <laughs> stick with, you know, fixed deposits, uh, money market funds. I think those are also uh, a, a, another option to consider to diversify within the uh, 20,000, which, which we mentioned just now, right? The- the, the fixed deposit money market funds, of course, we must understand low risk, low return. In this kind of environment, I would say correct because you are trying to protect capital. You're not trying to be aggressive to to, to seek returns because as you seek re- more and more returns today, you are taking on more and more risk. And in this kind of environment, you don't want to take on more risk. Okay, So I would say true. Right now, hide, hide in what we call low risk low volatility assets like savings or fixed deposit or money markets. But when the time comes, when the market capitulates, that's when you come out from the from the hiding behind the curtain uh, and start deploying some of these uh, money market funds back into the market. Yeah. And you guys have just heard it. Lah. I mean, 
indirectly because uh, Mr. Sunny is uh, that doesn't want to directly suggest you which stock to buy or which asset to buy because that's literally going on the verge of financial advice already and we try not to do that. <laughs> so so uh, allow me to just really repeat what Mrs. Sunny said just now. Diversify your uh, investments across Actually, very very nice diversification over there, Mister Sunny, because all these, all these assets, right? They 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 are kind of like, I would say, have a low correlation to one another. So if one were to go down, uh, quite particularly hard, the other uh, can kind of absorb the volatility as well, uh, Because we have digitalization, uh, this comes in terms of blockchain, crypto, etc. We also have things about climate change, EVs, you know, all those, uh, uh, uh a bit more to, uh, climate centered tech companies, uh, I, I, will, I will put it at that sense. Then we also have hard commodities, like what you said, uh, grain, rice, food. Uh, we also talked about the demographic side. And, and I think it really gives you a very balanced type of portfolio. And we also talked about how uh, right now, if you're seeing Bitcoin going up by easily, how, how, much, how many percent was it already? I'm just saying 60? <laughs> oh, 60. Yeah, yeah. 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 To here, right? Yeah, yeah, sixty. I think sixty to seventy percent in the span of this uh, two to three months. That's going to kind of make you feel a bit like uh, maybe it's not the right time to acquire when there's uh, so much greed, particularly in the crypto market. And also, we're not we're not done with all the crises yet, right, Mister Sunny? In terms of like inflation is still running hot, and 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 the Federal Reserve right now is dealt with a, a different problem, which is the entire purpose of our session tonight as well. But uh, again, f- fantastic session, Mr. Sunny, and I just want to uh, really thank you for agreeing to come to this session again along with Han. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, I just wanted to ask whether Harif has any other question since he's still on 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 uh, on the speaker side now. Oh really? For f- on on my side, he has already dropped down to be. Oh, really? yeah. okay. Do you see him as a speaker? Okay, now my in that case, please continue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, on my side, Harif has already dropped down to be a listener. But but for those of you guys, last call. Um, we'll probably go on the session for another one to two minutes. If you have any questions, now is the best time, uh, to ask Mrs. Sunny all any burning questions within your mind, la. So I'll give you guys probably, uh, one or two minutes to come up to the stage. Or if you guys are a bit shy, you can directly DM me your questions, and uh, I will go and check my DM see if there are any questions. Uh, okay. In the meantime. Mr. Sunny, anything to wrap up this session? Anything you want to say to, I would say, the younger generation since majority of the listeners here, I assume, they are towards the younger generation? Um, no, not, not, not a lot to add. Um, maybe just to put things into perspective because I've been hearing a lot of fear from everybody and so on. Um, you know, um, people look at what's happening in the US and they think it's coming the world is coming to an end and, and, and so on. Um, sometimes it's because of experience and therefore because I'm, I'm, I'm a dinosaur, I'm old, I've gone through 07, uh, 07, 08, 09, I've gone through 97, 98, you know, uh, 2000. So, I, you know, when I look at it, you know, it's bad. What we're seeing now today is bad, but, you know, you've not gone through um, 1997, for example. Uh, that was really bad. So I'm just trying to put things into perspective. You may fear and you may feel that, oh no, this is the worst crisis. Yeah, that's because you're young and therefore you've not gone through a lot of crisis. So this is the worst one. <laughs> and the past 10 years has been the most absolutely crazy um, um, situation where everything was just going up. You close the eyes, you buy, things will go up. And now you, all of a sudden you realize, oh, there's such thing as risk. Um, I just wanted to give you some comfort to say that, yes, 
while we are resetting, yes, while things are coming down, um, don't be fearful. Um, you know, uh, millionaires, uh, people who succeed uh, and uh, retire early, people who, who, who fulfill their dreams, are people who just basically are grounded and when the opportunity arises during these kind of crashes, if, they, if it eventually does crash or even declines, um, then they do their homework, they start picking up value stocks, they start picking up good investments when everybody else is panicking, and then they will reap the rewards in the months and years ahead. Okay, so, so don't, 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 don't be so fearful that you don't react. Now is the time to start to prepare. Prepare your ammunition, prepare your gunpowder so that when the time comes to pull the trigger, you are also psychologically prepared to pull the trigger. And I say pull the trigger doesn't mean push everything into the market at one time. You could dollar cost into the market 10% of whatever you have over 10 months. Much easier to manage the volatility. But the name of the game is to buy when the market is down, people are fearful, you know, Warren Buffett, whoever has mentioned buy buy when people are panicking, that's when you start to buy. Yeah. So very good advice there. Um and I think you'll do very well. So it's a preparation time right now, not really a time to panic. Yeah. Fantastic points over there, Mrs. Sani. I really just want to thank you again for joining the session. And that kind of wraps up, you know, our our session for the night. Uh we went through the entire banking crisis. We talked about uh Malaysian banks. And by the way, if you missed the earlier part of the session, uh, it's recorded. Just head on over to our profile. You can listen to the recording. Um, nothing to worry so far about Malaysian banks. The systemic risk is mostly contained uh, within small to mid-tier US banks. Okay, uh, but, it's, but it's a bit too early to say, but so far we think and we agree that uh, Malaysian banks, uh, there's there's not much to worry about just yet. Okay, uh, and the, another thing which we also talked about, PIDM. Uh, PIDM is definitely an insurance which all depositors have, okay? As long as you have money in the bank, you're insured up to 250000 Uh, Widespread rumors about the US dollar inflating, okay? Because a lot of people are talking about Bitcoin reaching $1 million in 90 days. Uh, crypto Twitter influencer famously said that. And, this, and the speakers, they kind of settled on, yeah, that's very unlikely to happen, US dollar hyperinflating because that's the world's reserve currency. Uh, and ultimately, we kind of settle on the point where owning a bit of cryptocurrency, the magic number is about, I think, 1% mentioned by Han. If you're a risky, if you're a risk taker, maybe go up to 3, 5, maximum 10%. And Mrs. Sunny also talked about not having uh, more than 10% of a particular asset within your portfolio just to ensure that you have a good amount of diversification. Yeah, so uh, I don't think we are going to accept any questions for now already. Like, anyway, we're going to end the session right now. All right, guys. Good night. Hope you hope you guys enjoyed the session. Uh, thanks for this, Sunny. Bye. See you guys. Bye.